His name is Heston Blumenthal. He's one of the world's finest chefs and a pioneer in exploring the hidden universes inside our cooking and eating. And now he's inviting us along for the ride. My name's Jay Taylor. I'm Heston's long-standing TV producer and your host as we take a culinary adventure with him. And on today's show, it's over to you to crack open Heston's head like a ripe-boiled egg and find all the great things inside as we enter another mailbag show where I put all your questions and ideas to Heston to see what he makes of it. So without further ado, let's meet the man who loves to question everything, Heston Blumenthal. Hello, Heston. Oh, hang on. Just unscrambling my scrambled head. (laughs) Hello, Jay. Hello, James. (laughs) Terrible intro. You know, Rome wasn't built in a day. There's still a lot of stuff yeah. I need to work on. Scrambled head. Hello, James. How are you doing? Oh, very good. Very good. Good to be here. Good to see you guys looking so young and fresh. We've recovered. <laughs> the beauty of imagination candy. and storytelling, James. Yeah. Young and fresh. I can only imagine. <laughs> Everyone knows what you look like, but no one knows what we look like. It's perfect. Imagine like a Disney prince for James and uh, yeah. GQ, I'll take a GQ model. Olaf. He's a snowman. Chaps, today we are doing the Q&A, but before we dive into that, I found an interesting story that I wanted to share. Uh, it was in Wired, and the, the, the headline was, Scientists are growing grapes in space to save Earth's wine supply. But basically, it was an interesting story I thought you might be uh, curious about. Basically, they sent a, uh, a load of grape vines up to space, and they spent a period of time up there uh the idea behind it because they've sent other foods up there and they've done some hydroponics and things like that but this the idea of this was not to see if they could grow and supply things in space because i don't think they want drunk astronauts but the idea was to basically see if they could uh, um, force the uh, wine plants to evolve in new ways because what they did was they they recently did a a famous experiment when they sent one of the two Kelly twins up to space uh, and he spent a year, a year and a half up there. And when he came down, it showed that his genes had activated in brand new ways, basically altered his immune system and bone formation and eyesight. Didn't they look uh, at his microbes as well? Yeah. yeah, 7% of his, his gene expression is still changed, even though he's, he's back on earth. So, and they've also shown that similar divergences happen in in plants and, and organisms. So they they were they were starting with with wine, and the idea was exposing the vines, and they're going to do other types of crops to microgravity plus all the high levels of radiation that we know there is on board the ISS will potentially evolve and trigger the organisms to evolve in a more resilient way to deal with um, climate change and that the challenges in the wine growing industry at the moment. I thought it was really interesting. That is very interesting, yeah. especially with water, with the gravity's effect on water. So if you, isn't it, I've always find it incredible how a little, the beginning of a plant or a tree, a little sprout comes up through the ground, a sprout that's so delicate you could sort of bend it and snap it with your little finger. However, these same little sprouts can go th- grow through concrete. You've seen it in roads and stuff, little plants, they crack the concrete. And that's, that's the effect of water, the water coming up as a result of fighting against gravity. So you remove gravity, what would happen to that effect of water? And it's really important in vine growing where vines, you know, you always say that <clears throat> work, talk, we talk about working for reward. So vines that are older and maybe grown in a, in, a, in a soil where they have to fight for longer, for harder to go deeper to find the water, produce more 
sturdy, durable vines, but it takes longer for them. You get the benefit after maybe 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of age. So it's really fascinating. When you take away gravity, you're probably going to get some disadvantages, but you'll learn new things and maybe develop new superhero strengths for them. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's curious, isn't it? It's sort of accelerating evolution in a way or, or branching in a brand new direction. Oh, excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> and am I, right, am I right in thinking they also sent some actual bottles of wine with this? Is this a SpaceX um, sort of adventure? Yes, yeah, so I think they also sent... Um, uh, sort of 24 bottles of, of, of different wines, sort of Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon in particular, to out into space for, for 14 months or near the sort of best part of 18 months to, to age and see what difference that makes. I don't know if they crack them open, but I was just thinking there's a, there's a great wine storage facility that's going to be floating around Saturn and back again so you can get these wines and age them for like 400 years. Yeah, it sounds like, you the know... the benefit of time travel. There's a thing like you, I'm thinking like Interstellar. When you buy... Um, <laughs> you can imagine... Uh, when you buy, bo- like, Bordeaux, uh, there's a thing called in Bond. You buy it in Bond. So you buy the vintage. You don't, it won't be in bottle for a couple of years. Then it gets put in Bond, which is like a sort of tax-free storage or something. I'm, the exact details I can't remember, but it's called in Bond. So this could be in Bond, in James Bond storage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just thinking if you could, if eventually we get to a sort of a black hole at the centre of our solar system, we send them in there and we can have wines that sort of can be thousands of years old, but are like they've just only 25 years, so they'll still be very drinkable. Or light find those bottles of wine at a bottle of the ocean. It's light years. years old. Light years old. Yes. Light years aged. <laughs> but it will taste like today. Do they do? do they, uh, it's an innocent question, as I'm sure they do, but do they do... Uh, uh, a lot of lab sort of genetic splicing with vines already is it is it well it uh, genetic splicing district? no there was something called phylloxera um years ago which was a is a beetle and it basically wiped out most of the world's vines this beetle because it ate the roots so quickly the roots the roots couldn't gr- uh, grow back uh, quick enough there are some areas that are phylloxera free so chile for example you know where they've got you've got the sea and the mountains that the, the little beetles little things couldn't couldn't get there so in most parts of the wine growing world, they graft the vine. So they have a root from a vine. I can't remember the, t- the, the actual name of the vine, but the root, which on its, in its own makes pretty mm. awful wine. However, the roots um, or the root network grows back really quickly. So it means the beetles can, can, the phylloxera can sort of chomp on the roots, but they just grow back. They keep growing back. So they graft the actual vine, it could be a Chardonnay, it could be Cabernet Sauvignon, onto this rootstock to protect it from phylloxera. Wow, so they do they do, do that. They are changing it. Yeah, yeah. And there's a project there's a project I remember reading about ongoing in, in Rioja where one of the wine producers, I think it's Bodega Roda, have started a, a kind of a field of clones where what they've done, because the environment's changing so much, is taken a graft of, of all the different various Tempranillo grapes they can find from yeah. the whole region for everybody and, and made a field where they're preserving them so they can keep trying the original variety, but with obviously the environment's changing. So as as various climate changes go forward they can maintain the, you know, the flavor profile of the rioca that we all want to make but using maybe slightly different strains of, of the original grape so you know there's lots of ways that these guys are playing around with the you know the genetics and the biology of the, the vine all the yeah. time and are, they lab, in- are they lab grown wines do they ever grow lab uh, do they ever grow vines in labs? You oh, know, sort of hydroponics. Tr- many, yeah, they've tried many things. If anyone's interested, one of the one of the main centres for this is Davies University. I think it's D A V I E S. Davies in California. There's a lot of modern technology used now in 
um, studying, researching um, the vine, its habitat, you know, the, 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 the rootstocks, the, the weather systems, how to uh, avoid, I think we touched on this before, you know, some, I mean, uh, some of the most expensive or the handful of uber expensive vineyards have used helicopters at certain times of the year just to hover above the vi the vines to move the air around so you don't end up with it with a like a very damp air that's sort of static which can generate mold so let's bring some helicopters in lads you know when it's working well it's quite a profitable business that sounds like nonsense that does that sounds like something rich people do that sounds like we're charging you 50 quid more for this bottle because it's dried <laughs> by helicopter <laughs> oh well that's fascinating okay so so the way so the way it's going to work today is uh i'm going to dive into all the questions that uh you guys out there have been sending in for heston we really appreciate this we got some wonderful correspondence coming in from you and we'll try and get through as many of these as we can today and they range right across the spectrum so where we go nobody knows but the first one is from adam thompson adam says hi heston big fan of the po uh, podcast love listening to your thought process um he said i listened to the coffee podcast he's a, a few weeks behind but he loved it uh, and particularly your shout out to the aussie coffee culture he's an aussie himself working in melbourne uh and he argues that melbourne is australia's coffee capital which i probably agree with uh he wanted to pass on some of the newish fads doing the rounds like uh bullet coffee or magics and he says one of the great new trends is macadamia milk have you tried it? it's brilliant particularly in milk-based coffees it's much creamier than almond and a lot more sustainable to boot uh, and on another note you mentioned if being a regular coffee drinker means it doesn't keep you up at night and he says he can attest to that he can happily drink coffee after dinner and still sleep like a baby so there's a bit of coffee culture insight macadamia milk you tried that uh i have but never in coffee it is it is nice and rich and creamy um and macadamias actually do have an awful lot of fat if, if it is an experiment i suggest you don't try if you eat uh too many macadamia nuts too quickly the oil in there acts as a lubricant for um number twos and so it's a, it's it's you have to be careful with the effect that it has on your gut but the milk is not is definitely nice and uh is definitely nice and rich and and oh sorry adam thanks for thanks for your uh for contacting us it's, it's interesting i didn't think about you know uh, can you with can you um condition yourself to sleep like a baby by drink with drinking coffee actually maybe maybe that it's interesting how some metaphors you know maybe they should be reviewed because sleep like a baby sometimes babies what do they do they pee they wet the bed they they poo themselves <laughs> they cry they vomit and they get indigestion and they can't sleep and get overtired so um Sounds like my so if it's like a baby actually. maybe the coffee did have an effect but i'm guessing it's, it's <laughs> sleep having a good sleep I, and, and probably like anything but some people are more sensitive to certain things than others and in yeah, fact so you know what a delicate flower i am with coffee yeah well, I, I, place with I, I, too. i'm just thinking about this i used to drink coffee i have i'd have an espresso after i went out for a meal this is years ago now um in my ripe old age i i i I tend to stop about four o'clock. Half past three is my last cup of coffee. Now, that could be psychosomatic, completely. At 25 years old, you stop at that time in the afternoon. It's just At 25, yeah. <laughs> just wait till I'm 50 at 25. something. Yeah. <laughs> we actually had another note uh, in from another side of the globe. So uh, Benjamin Watt comes in on the coffee and says... 
Hello, absolutely love the podcast. In Singapore, mm. our coffee beans are further roasted with butter or margarine and sugar, then ground to a coarse powder for brewing. Some old timers even emulsify a small amount of butter or margarine before drinking it. What does that mean? Ah, well, it means you, you emulsify is basically um, like a mayonnaise is an emulsification when you've got water and fat <clears throat> and you mix it so it becomes kind of thicker and creamier as opposed to the the, the 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 fat and the water separating so i've been to singapore i've been to singapore where's singapore <laughs> i've been to singapore before uh no I've, I've been to singapore a couple of couple of times but i've never i don't think i've had that coffee it'd be interesting next i'd love i'd love to try it so the emulsified i think james can you double check i think the bullet was the bullet mm. became really fashionable amongst cyclists wasn't it a shot of coffee with coconut butter a shot of coffee coconut butter and something else i think that was the bullet and and they would have it before cycling i might be completely and utterly barking up the wrong tree here but see i don't like taking coffee i've tried coffee before sport and i do not like what it does to my heart rate it's really hard i find it really hard to kind of get into any kind of activity after having coffee so i'm surprised the cyclists take that but obviously those are they're machines those guys aren't they Uh, there was a, are you talking about bullet, there was a bulletproof coffee that I'm just reading about here, which was was a high calorie drink made with added fats. I don't know whether that's related to the cyclist, but it's obviously got some some additional things to it. But there was also um, there was a trend recently when talking about the emulsified coffee of sort of getting coffee, instant coffee, and sort of whisking it really fast with milk. It was a sort of trend on on across social media where it would make this kind of almost like a caramel, and it would almost be like that dolce uh, de leche kind of you know condensed milk caramel stuff which you could then you'd then layer up in your in your glass now i'm just going to hop in here because i want to share with you a great offer that we have from one of our sponsors they are called harry's and they make fantastic razors and i can speak from personal experience because i've been using one of them and it has been brilliant to help fight back against that lockdown beard that keeps trying to pervade every time i look in the mirror so i wanted to talk to you about harry's briefly um they're a really great company and they were started by two guys called jeff and andy who were basically just fed up with overpriced razors so decided to go and buy their own factory so they could ensure that they could make them of high quality and low price and that's basically exactly what they did they've not only created razors they've also created really nice smelling shaving foam and lovely products to go alongside it and i really recommend you give it a go because frankly it is better than the other ones that we have spent so much money on over the years and it's a great chance for us to start getting ourselves back in some kind of condition for when lockdown and covid finally blows over and we have a great offer that we want to share with you guys you can get started shaving today with harry's by claiming your trial set for just three pounds 95 you'll be supporting our podcast and getting a trial set delivered to your door including a razor handle a five blade cartridge foaming shave gel which does smell lovely and a travel blade cover all you have to do is go to harrys.com forward slash heston right now that's harrys.com forward slash heston and you'll be shaving away that lockdown beard in no time at all right let's get back to some questions and answers bulletproof coffee for cyclists the buttery caffeine here we are bicycling.com the buttery caffeine of champions. Forget cream and sugar. Add butter. Uh, add butter to your morning brew to kickstart your day and feel invincible when you ride. In his new book, The Bulletproof Diet, author and cyclist Dave Asprey says, 
When you mix coffee with the right fats, you get a drink that stomps on hunger and helps you lose weight, build muscle, and increase performance. He calls it bulletproof coffee. Wow. I think anything anything that probably supercharges men in Lycra charging around uh, London, I'm going to sort of go well, it, it, the Well, pho- <laughs> the photograph below this sums it up. It's, it's the coffee in a mug, and on the mug is written, Good morning, asshole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The, the bankers out there may may go for that one, but I think <laughs> uh, we've had a really interesting email in here, which I think you're going to enjoy. From Matt Archer it says, uh, "Hi, J. James and Heston. Really love the podcast. Has transformed how I think, feel, and taste about so much. Really? Hopefully, in a good way. I'm thinking it sounds that's great." Um, he says, "We've been playing a game for the past five years with our friends, Ooh. as yet without without a winner, and wondered if you could help." Now, James, you're going to have to be googling frantically on this one. It's to do with the traffic-like system on the food packaging. So if you think on the back of the food packaging, yeah. you get those different, you get energy, fat, saturates, sugar, and salt. And the fat, saturates, sugar, and salt are, are either green, amber, or red, depending on how good or bad for you they are. And he says, the rules of the game are simple. Find a single food item with a full house of reds. He said, after much searching, we've come to the conclusion that three reds and an amber are fairly common. Salted caramel ice cream, for example, but never found the elusive four reds. And he asks, why is this? Is this a case that uh, of food companies, companies altering ingredients to evade the red mark of doom? Or, he says, because any food with whopping amounts of fat, saturates, sugars and salt wouldn't taste great. Please help from uh, Matt Archer. So what thanks a, for that, Matt. What, it's, it's, yeah, what about what about Nutella? Have a look at Nutella. Here we're going to we're, we're, oh, basically this is, the whole podcast now going to generate Matt, generated this is brilliant. This is brilliant. <laughs> I've completely forgot what this podcast is about now. <laughs> Let's play a game. My knees are bouncing up and down, side to side. Um, so he's got to have fat, sugar, salt, and what was the fourth? So it's fat, sugar, salt, and, and uh, saturates. And yeah, saturates. No, I think no, I think that Nutella yeah. might have that in droves. Ooh, what was I going to go with? See, I will immediately start thinking about some of those fancy chocolates. I was thinking about some of those, but maybe they don't have too much salt in them. Curiously, for his question on that front, do you think it's a case that actually having all four would would fight against each other too much? Mm, um, no, in theory, that's is the in theory it's the opposite because we all of the fat fats, sugar and salt, uh, particularly fats and sugar, are, are sort of evolutionary wise are energy giving foods so um that's just the problem if you put loads of saturated fats and sugar and salt in a food it's going to generally become unless you over egg it more tasty although to today's palate i think i think i think we're changing now i believe nutella might be very low in salt so sneaks into the green zone on the salt it's it's three reds and oh. a green. I'm saying from my my quick Google. I don't know if. Uh, okay, can I go with can I go with Ben and Jerry's? I'm going to go with a, right. a Ben and Jerry's, and let's go with um, Caramel Sutra or one of those ones because I feel that they've got. I feel like they've got quite a lot of them one in second. there. I got one more after this. They don't make this information very accessible for a reason, right? Oh, and we want everyone out there getting involved in, in Matt's game as well. We'd love to see if we can get the full house of reds because this does sound like there's got to be something out there that does them. And, I, I, uh, I mean, it's for salt, you see, isn't it? To have a, have a, have a sugar and the salt. Where are you looking, James? I might have a level. quick look while you're looking just to speed uh, things up. G- Google. Google. Yeah, yeah, Literally Googling. I'm Googling. What did you, what did you I'm adding, but... I put in Nutella food label traffic light 
and it comes up okay. with a, it came up with an image of a side of a of a, of a package. But Ben and Jerry's is is trickier, but I imagine it might be on their actual website. So uh, I guess you have to you have to you have to make this information publicly available, but it probably you don't have to make it the front page. <laughs> Exactly. Oh, I see. Yeah, you're right. There's lots of Ben and Jerry's, and unsurprisingly, no, no point does that point towards any of the pictures. <laughs> yeah, suspicious. Now you see they might do it. What What was your other guess, Heston? What was your next well, guess? I wanted mm. to look at either because uh, I, I was sparked off by what our recent tasting of uh, some candies and chocolates from from the states. And I wonder about Reese's Pieces or Hershey's because oh, they had peanuts in them. And generally, you do put quite a lot of salt in there. Um, that's a great idea. Sorry. That one you would think, wouldn't it? It's yeah. going to have loads of saturates in it, isn't it? Oh, but they're American. Do they have a traffic light? Oh, have, no. Do they? No, they no. don't have traffic lights, do they? It's all green uh, in America. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I've got, I'm looking here. I've got a load of them here. I'm trying to find one with all reds. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to drive us mad now trying to find one of the little reds also how how easy do you think it would be for the companies to slightly manipulate those results to make sure that they're never all reds well it depends what you call manipulation really because you, you if you want to if i mean ideally if you could create the sensation or the feeling of something being saltier i mean pleasingly saltier than it actually is so you put you you actually can can sort of trick the mind to thinking something saltier so do you know we did before with our taste and flavor experiments um mm -hmm. do you remember we did the vanilla pod but we did that a long time ago where you you look at a vanilla pod and if you think about a vanilla pod you would most people would describe the smell as well as vanilla but it would taste sweet but sweet doesn't have a smell it's a taste so yep. if you then chew a vanilla pod it's not, there's nothing sweet about it. It's bitter. It's really bitter. It's just that we associate vanilla with sweetness because vanilla is put in biscuits and baking and, and, and ice creams and milkshakes and, and all sweet foods, mostly. Um, so we associate vanilla so if you, as being sweet. So you can add a touch of vanilla extract into a, into a dish and that can enhance the perception of sweetness. So you can do similar things to enhance the perception of salt. So... That, in fact, for me, is quite a positive thing because you're giving a salty, you're giving the impression of something being saltier than um, than it actually is. So you're using less salt, but creating the pleasing element of the salty taste. That's really interesting. I know I've just found the the definition of uh, of what is high. So to get on the red label, basically per hundred grams, you need over fifteen grams of sugar. You need Whoa. over twenty grams of fat. You need over five grams of saturates and over one point five grams of salt. So that is significant. One, per hundred grams. Per hundred grams, you'd have what? How yeah, thirty-five grams of fat and I, sugar. How much is Nutella got then? Let's have a look. So anyone listening, <laughs> if they haven't realised already, we love games. Yes. <laughs> We'll be doing this for hours. I might go get my jar of Nutella out of the cupboard. Hold on, guys. I mean, Nutella <laughs> is this way. Yeah, that, yeah, it does say Nutella is low in sodium. Well, they have to say it's low in something, isn't it? It's low in carrots. I can't like the idea. <laughs> Nutella is really low in carrots. <laughs> oh, sounds good. I, I did to my joy. A great my TV ad campaign. Nutella, low in carrots. <laughs> 
I like the idea now James is just rummaging through his fridge getting all the worst food <laughs> yeah. out desperately playing the game uh, Matt sure what have you done a supermarket my <laughs> yeah. next supermarket shop is 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 never going to be the same as any any previous <laughs> you'll shop. never get out the supermarket oh. no you'll be there for ages till you find one what have you got James <laughs> Well, disappointingly, my jar of Nutella doesn't have any labelling on whatsoever. It has a, has a Christmas sweat around it. Oh, knock-off one. <laughs> it's one of those dodgy but ones. Does it, I mean, it has the information, obviously, clearly displayed on the back, but it doesn't have a traffic light system. But per 100 grams, it's got 30.9 grams of fat, 10.6 of which are saturates. Sugar, it's got 57.5 grams per 100 grams of carbohydrate, of which 56.3 are sugar. It's got 6.3 grams of protein um, per 100 grams. I mean, salt, I mean, if you're looking for a low-salt diet, Nutella's your friend here. It's 0.1 gram per 100 grams. That's what gets it through. That's what gets it through. That's uh, that's on the amber. you can't have... Are you not allowed... Have you found that you're not allowed a product with all red? Is there some kind of law? Does the uh, the police turn up? I love it. There's a stockpile somewhere of all reds in some kind of sort of EU stolen zone where you're not allowed to have the all reds. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure half of those sweets we had from America last week must have been all reds. Some of those... Remember that, that weird thing that tasted like deep heat? That's oh sure yeah, be good yeah. For us. <laughs> I think. Uh, okay, well, uh, Matt, thank you for that. We are we are going to be doing that for uh, a long time. And anyone out there, please get involved. We would love to hear the full House of Reds, and we will, of course, be uh, we'll be checking back regularly to see what uh, see what we can find on that front. So we have uh, we have something here from Theo Feast. Uh, he says sometimes I get stuck when I have too many ideas for a new dish I'm designing. What's your idea? What's your R and D process for creating new dishes? Now I know you have lots of ideas. So this is this is curious. A few people have asked this: is how you how you take an how you refine your focus to be able to develop new dishes. What's your <clears throat> process on that? We well, don't have don't have one process because it, for, I could just give you an example. If you look at let's say, I think I think you got to. It's helpful to have some parameters first because if you can do anything and go anywhere. You know, uh, you just think, well, where where on earth do I start? Because it's such a massive, potentially potential creative universe. So let's take the restaurants. Let's look at the perfectionist cafe, at Heathrow. We know that that we worked out that people have on average on average forty something minutes. They allow themselves just to to to. Um, after checking, get everything ready, have something to eat. So we worked out that with 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 Heathrow that maximum um, waiting time for food is eleven minutes. So, in fact, that was one of the inspirations for fast food. Fast food pizza, for example, is an oxymoron. It's a paradox. There's nothing fast about making a pizza. Cooking a pizza is the opposite. It's fast. So you, the best, the the best. The, the, the authentic Napolitano pizza, Naples pizza, is cooked in about a minute. The oven's got to be so hyper hot, uh, wood oven. However, the dough, the flour, the way the, the, the processing, the making of the flour, the growing of the tomatoes, the, the, the uh, proving of the dough, the lighting of the oven, all, that all takes days. It's just the cooking's quick. So it, fish and chips, again, the, the last minute cooking, it, it works. It works for that for that restaurant so there were some parameters uh dinner in london it's inspired by historical british uh recipes and maybe um food and cooking rituals and traditions so again that gives parameters 
the fat duck is a much more complex affair because it, on some levels, you know, any anything is is possible. But ultimately, that is about a personalised trying to create ratatouille moments for people. That moment where you've tapped into someone's a wonderful nostalgic memory that's been seemingly tailor made for them, and it could be the sound of of the sea from the from from their seaside memory, so to speak. Um, and the many the, the the actual key dishes they're sort of the dish, let's call it an object, is universally around the table. People can recognize the object. So it could be Christmas lunch. It could be um, an Easter egg. It could be breakfast. It could be afternoon tea. Lots of the things that we've done on the TV shows. So the, the object of the food, the, 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 the food-centric object draws people in but everyone's got their own unique relationship with that object. So we all understand what a Christmas tree is um, or our Christmas lunch is, but we'll have our own emotional connection and memory with that object. So the fat duck, we actually really look at um, emotions. How can we trigger certain emotions through storytelling? So it's a lot more complex. Now at home, there's many ways to look at it. It could be, you could be focusing on something seasonal, I think if you find an amazing product, ingredient, and maybe you've gone and done a bit of research into the maybe the farmer, the fisherman, the the the, the vegetable grower, the um, yeah the, the the guy that's doing special spices or something like that, and you do a little bit of research about them, you build a story around that ingredient. Then you have more value to it. Um, also, you can open your fridge and open your larder. I just have a look what's in there, and if you work at a rate which is you're, you're, you're continually moving and thinking about what you're doing you get in this sort of state of flow so you wonder how you're going to if you're going to peel a carrot or cut a carrot how are you going to cut it so your engagement your connection with what you're doing in the ingredients come and come to life so I know um uh sorry Theo it's a it's a it's a it's a, it's a long answer to your question because it's such a human humongous subject and human beings have this unique ability to imagine things that don't exist so your imagination as Einstein said a, um, knowledge will get you from A to A to B or A to Z but imagination will take you everywhere uh, and so it's also sometimes a big head scratching moment how do I approach this my one piece of advice having had that ramble it is the more you can connect and, and more you can be aware of your own feelings and emotions and your senses, what you're hearing, what you're seeing, what you're touching, what you're feeling, what you're thinking, the more you can be aware as opposed to going on robotic mode, you're just going through the process, following a recipe verbatim, thinking about what you've got to do tomorrow. The more you can connect with the, with the process, what your, 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 your physical actions on the ingredients and the eating and the tasting then I'd imagine a beautiful imaginary world opens up to you. I mean, just from our perspective, obviously TV is a related world and certainly in our time spent together creating things for that, I've always felt the most creativity you ever get when you're coming up with new ideas is not when you have a blank piece of paper. It's when you're tightly pushed into a corner of time, yes. money and problems. That's when you're truly creative because, you, like you said, you have those parameters which give you place to play and then within yeah. that, creativity yeah. can grow. Whereas if you say, here's an infinite budget, infinite time and infinite ideas, it's almost, it's almost impossible. When you say, right, you have to do something to do with the 1970s pot noodles in three hours and with £10.50 to do it and it's got to be on TV next week. Suddenly, that's when 
the the ideas explode and i think that's when absolutely on the screen we were doing our best stuff because because exactly that so those, uh, i know tv's not the same world but parameters have always helped the creativity on our side of the fence i could also say about the fat duck because the kitchen was so tiny um in order to get the efficiency the consistency and the precision through service you know same dish to every 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 customer now it's different because we're trying to personalize but it meant me zooming into the more the, the finer detail and mechanics and physics of cooking just to see how because if I had a, a Rolls Royce kitchen then gadgets probably would have done that for me and I wouldn't have learned so much so that tiny pokey little kitchen it, it's not it is a Rolls Royce kitchen now but that tiny little kitchen that I spent so many thousands of hours in yeah my relationship with that cramped space and second rate equipment was a real um was a real godsend to me. Well, that's what it is, isn't it? I've always felt that it sounds very unromantic, but often the heart of creativity is not just sort of a weird idea plopping out your ear and you sort of shriek it into the ether. It's actually problem solving. Just like you said, your your, your capacity to solve yeah. problems put in your way, even if it's, as, oh, we've got to have a new dish on, or we've only got a small gas hob, or even way back in your career when you're saying, how do I get consistency with this when I have ultimately an inconsistent yeah. world to work in? They're all problems that you found really creative solutions to get around. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm just going to hop in here to chat with you about something because hopefully, thankfully, possibly, maybe, as lockdown is lifting, the world is starting to get back to normal. And that means, hopefully, for all those small, medium businesses out there, there's going to be lots of opportunities to grow your business. And whether you're looking to shift your business or hire more remote employees, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. And we want to talk to you about a company who are here to help when you're ready to make your next hire, LinkedIn Jobs. Yes, that's right, LinkedIn. You know, the LinkedIn that everybody is on in the world of business. Well, the great thing is they are now here to help you match your role with qualified candidates and lend you a helping hand. Your first job post is going to be free. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 30 million members in the UK. So if you can't find the right person out of that lot, then I don't think there is going to be one for you. Getting started is easy and their new features can help you find qualified candidates quickly. All you do is post a job with targeted screening questions and they'll quickly get the role in front of the right qualified people. So you're not going to be messing around with any time wasters or trawling through thousands of CVs. You can manage your job posts and contact candidates from the single view on the familiar LinkedIn.com as functions are streamlined into one simple screen. And you can do it from your mobile phone. No matter what time of the day or wherever you are, you want to be posting jobs and getting the right employees. So when your business is ready to make that next hire, you can find the right person with LinkedIn jobs. And now you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash Heston. That's linkedin.com slash Heston to post a job for free. Now, terms and conditions apply, but hopefully very soon you'll be finding the perfect employees to supercharge your business. Right, back to questions and answers. Talking about problem solving, it's often a, a good practice to change for problem. If you can't solve one problem, start thinking about a, a different problem. It could be completely unrelated or disconnected and, and just see how sometimes those cross-pollinate and actually why you're trying to solve something else but might not have the same time frame, time uh, constraint on it. You actually, a, a little idea pops in to help you with your, your bigger problem and I think that's often a way. So it's, it's sometimes good to distract yourself with, with what you might think is an achievable 
goal of something, another project or another little... I mean, that, that's, that's, actually... a, that's a great point. And that kind of relates to the magnifying glass on the coat of arms. You know, that's saying, what is it? If, there, if, there's, if there's a problem, there's a solution. If there's no problem, then there's, you don't need a solution. And actually, maybe what you're looking at is the problem. You need to move, change the magnifying glass, as James said. I think, I think mm. sometimes we're so... We forget that we're just looking at it from one perspective. And I think if you look at people like you know, Leonardo da Vinci and Picasso with Cubism, they, that's, part, that's really what the, the essence of Cubism was about. Let's try and look at this from as many perspectives as we possibly can. Good question and, and fascinating answers. Um, this, is, this, is, this is something in here from Jack Montgomery. Jack says, hi there. I'm a longtime Heston fan ever since at the age of 17. I saw him on the cover of the Sunday Times magazine, surrounded by a halo of mackerel and red peppers and saucepans. At least that's what the image. What you were going to say, a bevy of beautiful women. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is like your James Bond era. Uh, he'd never had much interest in food before that, and in 17 years, uh, he's basically devoured everything you've written and filmed. Uh, he's moving to France, wow. uh, and he's currently in the process of opening his first restaurant. Oh, no, sorry. He moved to France. He's currently in the process of opening his first restaurant in Edinburgh. So very good luck with that, Jack. Um, He loves the child... The Childlike Curiosity of the podcast. And he's got lots of questions he wants to ask. He's going to stick to one or two. He said... he loves reading about your journeys at the great restaurants in the France in the 80s and 90s. Uh, he's curious if you still enjoy that, this today. But he wants to know if your relationship with eating out has changed over the years from pre-duck to, to now. Do you still pay the same attention to the guides, like the Michelin guides and things like that? And are there countries, restaurants, chefs that you still look at in the same way you used to look at the work of Trauma and Tuagara and uh, Chappelle, etc.? Uh, so he's just curious about how your perspective has changed on how you dine and visit places. Great question. I mean, I, and I, I've thought about this a lot. You know, my experience at the Beaumaniere. I don't know now. Obviously, that that was that was thirty. Oh, oh my! Oh my word! That was nearly forty years ago. Thirty-seven, thirty-eight years ago. <clears throat> before I knew, before I spent all those thousands of hours t- researching and tasting, and it doesn't matter if I was doing that or not, everybody changes us. The cells in our body change, our microbes change, our perspective changes. Our, with more experience, we learn and discover new things, so then we, we can kind of rewrite our memories to a certain extent. Um, and and I, I do know that from, a, from a, just a top-line point of view, many things have changed. Do I... I don't go to eat like I used to before the duck. No, um, actually, hardly ever. The extent of, is, I think, obviously, the last the last um, kind of best part of the last year has been slightly unique. Anyway, but before then, when we could travel around, I I I wasn't um, I I haven't been going out a lot to gastronomic restaurants. I'd like to start and actually just to re-engage. I do know that I, I'm, I certainly, it's funny, I, my relationship with myself and with food is much more fulfilling, emotionally aware and, 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 and connected than before. And so I can find in, in a funny way, greater pleasure in simpler things by eating more mindfully. I find that absolutely fascinating. I start i used to love looking at wine lists big wine lists and studying the menu now uh i like to just uh, for me just get the choices away from me do that done tick give everything back then i can shoulders go down and i can relax um it's this sounds really 
ungrateful. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway. I've done exactly the same as what I'm about to say to other chefs. I, for me, I, I believe really strongly that we that we throw so much food away. We we eat too much food. Too much food is eaten without enjoyment. So we could eat less and enjoy more. But I, I don't mean that in a judgmental way. It's just observation way. And, and, and people associate the more, you know, for me, if I go to a restaurant and I don't finish my plate to food, I might think that there was a problem. I didn't like it. In fact, I might have one spoonful and not want any more because that spoonful was so good. Then what do I do? I want to eat the rest of the plate of food because then I feel guilty. And then, and then, then when dessert comes, I start to feel full. Then I start to be angry with myself and get frustrated. <laughs> so this whole internal this dialogue goes on. So I prefer <laughs> to get what I order, have le- less choice, um, have less food and enjoy more mouthfuls. I think that's a, that's a big thing. But I do, I do want to re-engage with the restaurants again now and have a look. That's lovely. I have seen you, you know, lucky enough to eat in many places with you. And I think the most relaxed you are, because I do see you have, you, you are sometimes when we go into restaurants, you are aware that you're in that restaurant and they're looking at you and wanting to know what you're thinking. And the most relaxed you are is when they're really relaxed. And you sometimes even place it, you know, they have no idea. Yeah. They just turn up, give you something and you can just eat it and enjoy it rather than sort of them running up to you. Go, what do you think? What do you think? Because you know, you're sort of yeah, performing you them almost, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. And so you don't feel less. I'm, I'm very aware. It's sort of like I, I really, really dislike being, being late in restaurants. And, I, and I, I know when you're in the business, in fact, chefs, people think chefs are really a, a nightmare to cook for. And, and generally, um, the sort of the, 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 the bigger chefs, let's say, are much more relaxed. They're much more relaxed. I understand that, you know, restaurant business is a human driven business and you have good days and you have bad days. And you know, and it's and sometimes you walk. I can walk into a restaurant and think, oh, oh, they're some. They, they, the service has gone. There's, I remember. I remember years ago at the Duck, where the moment when the service controls you and you don't control the service, it is it is a nightmare. Luckily, in the shit, as your guys all call it. We're in, in the, the shit. shit is the phrase. Which I've never got oh, that phrase in the kitchen. Oh, bench, we're going, get out. <laughs> going down. We're going yeah, down. Yeah, going down. <laughs> <laughs> going down is a classic one. <laughs> which always meant if you put that camera near me it's going to go where the sun don't shine is that when it, we're going down or in the ship uh, like, okay, right in the middle of right in the <laughs> middle of going down in the middle of the service there's a whacking great camera right inside of somebody's face where they're trying to dress the plate oh hang on a second can you just wait I'm just going to change my lens <laughs> hang on a second no, somebody's waiting for this food that's when the best shots are when you're in the ship that's when it gets good <laughs> oh, lovely question thank you for that Jack and best of luck with the restaurant yeah, thanks Jack um, yeah good luck we, uh, we've had an interesting one from Ben Trelaw here uh, Ben Trelaw 0 um, he says what do you think's the oh uh, by the way you're a he- real hero of his he's got question everything tattooed on him now oh fantastic where? I want, where I want one of them yeah exactly hopefully not with a face <laughs> of you next to us <laughs> full back tattoo of you um he says what do you think is the best and worst dish if there ever was one on the menu of the fat duck now i'm not going to ask you about the best one because i know you don't ever ask that but i am curious about dishes that went onto the menu at some point in the fat duck that don't necessarily have to be the worst but ones that you got rid of quickly or had to erase or never quite made it on what's the ones that you look back on go that bloody thing there i mean there was so much i always was didn't I never put a dish on the menu until I thought at the time it was ready to go on. And then a year later, 
Yeah, the dish, the dish is still, the name might be similar, but the dish has changed beyond a lot of recognition. Many, many different things have evolved. And I look back and then I thought, oh God, how come, I, how come I put that dish on the menu the year before? But at the time, I thought it was right to go on the menu. <clears throat> so on reflection, I can look back and think, my God, I can either look back with, with regret and think, why, how come I thought that was good enough to put on the menu? Or I can say, look how much this dish has evolved. And that's something This, in terms of, going back to Theo's question about creativity, you know, in, in very, restaurant and, and, and home cooking are very different because in restaurant cooking, when you're in a um, you know, gastronomic restaurant cooking, tends to have a bigger team. So it's more like an orchestra. Whereas at home, you're cooking yourself. So you can be much more intuitive. You can change your mind. You can adapt to the ingredients you've got. And maybe you find that maybe you're, you know, your pepper's not as pungent as you thought it would be, so you put a bit more in, and you just, you adapt. You adapt, so maybe you haven't got the right pan. You just keep on adapting and changing. But in a, in a, in a restaurant environment, when you have the complexity of, of, of the dishes, the nature of the duck, and many different departments, it is like an orchestra, and, the, and, the, and the, the head chef on the pass has to conduct to get the timings of all the different elements, from the veg to the sauce to the fish to the meat, all coming together at the right time. And... Um, and so when a dish goes on the menu, there, there, is, there is a new concept, there's that, that type of creativity. Then there's something I call restless perfectionism. So for me, perfection comes from the Greek uh, in um, complete. It's, it means it's complete. So 10 out of 10 is perfect a, perfect, a perfect 10. However, if you talk about emotion, perfection when it comes to anything emotional, um, it's much more complicated. In general, a perfection ethos you need in manufacturing for consistency. So, you know, if you order an iPhone, you know what size it's going to be and it should come out that size and it shouldn't come out as a triangle. And it should come out with all the bits in the right place, exactly the right place. That is a sort of perfection ethos. However, and you need it, it's very important. But in terms of creativity, perfection can, 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 can be... Um, strangling suffocating for creativity because in a perfection ethos you have fear of failure because you've got a target you have to achieve however once we put the dish on the menu it goes into i call it restless perfectionism so one of my sort of likening metaphors is railway tracks you put a train on the track and it meanders it goes through woodlands over the mountains over a bridge under a tunnel through fields along the sea and as it's it's moving along its train tracks you can you continually update it you can repaint it, you can re, you know, put new curtains in, put new lights on, you can, you know, whatever it might be. But you, comp you, you continually evolve it while it's on, the, and that's restless perfectionism. So I would say there's, there are lots of dishes that, in funny way, probably more that fit into this category than the other way around. Because when I think a dish can't be evolved anymore, in the past, I've just, that's when I've taken it off the menu. Um, and then sometimes, like in the case of snail porridge, we've had people, you know, com complaining. They might have booked from halfway across the world months in advance uh, and there's no snail porridge. So we've yeah. had to then bring these dishes back on and sometimes they're not on the menu, but we've got a few just in case. So, so I'd say in answer to that quest great question is that, is that there are... You know, I look at the first iteration of bacon and egg ice cream and there's some dishes I have a belief because of the, the, my journey of creativity for the dish that this, this is, I really feel of this dish. And then sometimes these dishes go through a Marmite love or hate period. 
Uh, and you've got to look at it and think, well, how much of this is that the dish is actually disrupting because it's so, it, people haven't got anything to relate it to. So it can polarize people. And then eventually it, it, it calms down. I could ramble on about that subject for a long time as well. Sorry. Fascinating, though. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And, and I can attest to being, you know, your development kitchen over many years, watching these dishes constantly being retweaked and retweaked. And anything that makes its way onto the menu has to work so hard to earn its place. And equally, the things that are already there are constantly earning their place because they're always being challenged by new things and having yeah. to evolve. <clears throat> and it is it is that idea that it's not one dish. It's it's it sort of triggers broom, isn't it? But yeah. you know, you're changing the broom handle on the head of the broom so many times that it's a brand new broom every time, but it's still yeah. the same dish. Yeah. It, it's it's uh exactly. that was a great no great question and thank you to everyone out there for all your questions please do keep them coming we'll be having another q a soon we're just approaching our last question now because we're almost running out of time but in the before we get to that i just wanted to say please do get in touch at heston's podcast on instagram and the heston's podcast at gmail.com and if you get the chance please do rate and subscribe to us on itunes or wherever you happen to get your podcast because it means a great deal and it means that we'll always be popping into your inbox every monday morning to tell you loads of things heston our last question there is loads to go through here but there's one i was curious about here which i'll sort of slightly expand out it's from bren uh and he says bren here have you tried 3d printing food before uh and if you haven't would you give it a go i'm eager to now i'll expand that out because i know every time i walk in the dev kitchen there's always something there's a laser printer in there the other day and all sorts of things i'm just curious about those kind of technologies where you've taken things which are not necessarily designed for food and played with them what you've explored and, and, and looked at recently and over the years well in terms, we have a 3D printer. We've had one for years. The, the main problem at the moment with 3D printing is the type of foods that, you, that, that, that work in a 3D printer. They tend to be crystallized starches and sugars, stuff like that. And in fact, Jay, um, I think we might have been the first restaurant on the planet to use a 3D printer, you and I. Do you remember... We went to, uh, it might have been, it was not might have been, it was definitely the Victorian feast, the vibrator, the big wobbly jelly. We went to, um, there was a, a big stately home in London somewhere where there were those two guys, Bumpus and, was it Bumpus and Bumpus and Par doing, Bumpa, yeah, Bumpus and, and they And they were yeah. doing, um, it was a competition, it was the 3D, it was to do mini architecture for, with a 3D printer. You remember? Oh, and we went yes. and we did. We used that 3D printer. No one was using it for food at the time. They weren't. They weren't used. They were, they were making models. But we used that printer to make a 3D jelly mold, which was the yes. liquid center jellies that kept on collapsing on feast. That was my first um, foray into, into 3D printing. And that was with you. Then we started to play around with actually seeing what, what foodstuffs you could put in them. So, so um, actually down the road, Glenn, who's the chef at the Beaumaniere, they got the third, third star this year. He sent me a photo. He's very creative. He's got big creative um, bundles of creative energy. He, they, have a, they have a wonderful kitchen garden, veg garden there, and he's 3D printed a leg of ham. Ham on the bone, whole leg of ham, 3D printed it in the mould, and he's going to grow a courgette in that mold and then take the mold off and put it on the metal sort of, you know, frame, take it to the <laughs> table and carve a courgette in the shape of a 3d, uh, 3d, uh, lamb leg. So that, that's the 3d printing. And in terms of modern technology, yes, a lot uh, from, I remember when I first thought about using the distillator, 
Uh, again, no chefs ever considered using a distillator. Why did I want it? Because you could evaporate water at 20, 25 degrees centigrade and take the uh, the smells at low temperature off. And we, we used that for one of the feasts. We made chocolate water, remember, for the Willy Wonka show. I and do, I do. I had to write, because no, there weren't, chefs weren't using them. I had to write to the customs and excise to, just to promise that I wasn't going to be making moonshine with it. Um, <laughs> but we've got, me- there's many bits of kit from the sound box with the sound, remember, where you, that you can sort of plug your guitar into this box and you can put a flange on it so it goes dwang, dwang. And we, headphones and a mic, and we remember putting popping candy in your mouth and, and turning the crackles into a doing, 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 doing sound. Oh, there, there's an awful, an awful lot of, uh, we've, we've been playing around for five years now, six years with uh, VR and haptics. You know, so you put a, we've, we had a little desert island and, and I was standing in the lab once with this VR mask looking on my desert island. We found a bag of sand outside of the little building site just down the road from Bray. So I pulled ca- ca- cardboard on the floor, pulled the sand, rolled my jeans up, I stood in the sand. V- my VR mask, I had the, there were the, the sensors, the gloves you put on so I could see my hands. They were like robotic hands. And then there was a palm tree and one, I got one of my guys to break off a, a, a branch from a bush outside and he was holding the branch up. So when the palm tree blew, oh, and I had a fan where you could put water in for a mister. So I, we put a sea smell in the fan. So one of the guys was holding a fan in my face, blowing the sea breeze. <laughs> I'm standing on my jeans rolled up on a, on, a, on a pile of sand in an office. And then we've got a branch where the palm tree came over, I'd, I'd pull the branch. Um, and there was a moment when everything came together. It was surreal. It was absolutely surreal. I, I felt it was real. It's when incredible, isn't it? When, time, it, when, yeah. when it works like that. Yeah, it's so there's VR many, in the day and flying a plane where I took off and my stomach lurched like I was flying a plane. It was just the most remarkable thing. But I love the yeah. idea that not many other kitchens do you find the chef standing there with his trousers rolled up with a palm tree standing <laughs> on his face and VR goggles on. <laughs> so I, the funny thing is I love modern technology. I don't, I'm not very good with it, though. I think it might be a patience thing. But I do love I, the, the idea of combining, uh, combining the two. But ultimately, the end result is all about emotion, feeling and emotion. That's what we're after. Fantastic. Everyone out there, thank you so much for the questions. We do love digging in. So they send send us in all different ways, don't they, Heston? We, we really appreciate it. And please do keep them coming because we'll be doing another one of these episodes for now. But unfortunately for now, Heston, I'm afraid we've run out of time on this app. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So fantastic questions. I, I thought, right, I'm going to try and answer these really succinctly. But the questions were great. And the, and the subjects, you know, it's just such an exciting universe. It's a universe of food, eating and cooking. And now we're all looking for four reds on all our food labels. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <yes. laughs> <laughs> that's our homework for next week. Until next week, thank you, James. And thank you, Heston. See you soon. Thanks, guys. <laughs>